Thanks, Jillian. You can have a seat. Hey, it is great to see everyone. Um, man, man, I love being in a room with just a bunch of people that just want to praise God. It's such a great sound and such a great feeling, and uh, I'm glad you're with us this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, there's a little card and a seat pocket in front of you that is called a connection card. Um, if you want to put some information on there, we would just love to meet you. And uh, there are some boxes around the room that say uh, giving boxes, and you can just drop it in there. Uh, but we'd love um, to just get to know you a little bit. Um, glad you're here. My name is Roland Smith. If I have not met you, I am kind of new to staff. I started officially in January, and I lead worship and kind of oversee the worship ministry. But I've got this weird title I'm still trying to figure out, which is called the Pastor of Missional Culture. And I don't know what I don't exactly know what that is, um, but it is a very very cool title. Title, so I'm leaning into that, and we're going to lean into that a little bit more um, this morning. We have a really good friend of mine, and um, that's going to help lead us into a new series. And you know, we've been doing the Angry Jesus series, where we're going to switch gears a little bit for summer. Everyone's outdoors cooking in their backyard, I hope, and uh, doing really cool stuff. So we have a new series over the next three weeks called Barbecue Evangelism. And you'll see that evangelism's kind of crossed out, which is weird to do in church, right, to cross out a churchy word. Um, but here's the thing. We love barbecue. Can I get hands? Yes. We love barbecue. Evangelism. Yeah, see, that's what I thought. And so, but here's, here's the cool thing. Evangelism is not what you think it is, okay? It really isn't. Uh, I've been in the church a long time as a pastor. We've not done a great job of talking about evangelism in terms of what Jesus thinks evangelism is. John's going to help us do that this morning. We're going to spend the next three weeks talking about barbecue and evangelism, and it's going to be great. John Rittner is a, a friend of mine. He is the lead pastor for a church in Hollywood, California, Ecclesia Hollywood, and uh, we've known each other for a little while because we are also both part of an international community, a national community called Forge America. I lead the Forge Colorado Springs hub or training hub. John leads the Forge Hollywood uh, training hub. We were just we just got to spend the week in Steamboat Springs together at a retreat. And while we had him in the state, I was like, "Hey, why don't you come and share with us and kick us off?" Because he knows uh, what Scripture says about the word evangelism in a really really good way. He's a great teacher, great communicator, and so let's give him a pulpit rock howdy doody. And uh, here's John Rittner. Well, good morning, Pulpit Rock. It is great to be back in Colorado Springs. Uh, my wife and I have great memories from being here. About um, Maybe about 10 years ago, there's a, uh, a national organization called Love and Respect that maybe you've heard of. They wrote a great book on marriage, and they did a national contest around Valentine's Day. And the contest was basically uh, to write down the story of the worst fight you've ever had at a married couple, and then how maybe Love and Respect helped resolve it. And so we entered and won. So... I didn't really know how to feel about that. Like, we had the worst fight in the nation that was solved by this book. Okay, but the good news was the winner got an all-expense-paid trip over Valentine's Week to the Broadmoor. So those are our memories of Colorado Springs. I don't know what your housing accommodations look like, but when we think of Colorado Springs, we just imagine the Broadmoor and everyone living in homes like that. And we got to go to Garden of the Gods and visit all around. And so it's fun to, to be back down here again 
Uh, I love this idea of trying to redefine a word or kind of redeem a word from maybe um, negative connotations. I, three years ago, I moved uh, from Brussels, Belgium, which I'll share about in a little bit, to Los Angeles with my family. And when I got to Los Angeles, I realized that the entire city of Los Angeles apparently had gotten together and decided to um, uh, redefine the word ramen. So when I, when I was a college kid, ramen were these little packs of instant noodles that were 49 cents each. And if you didn't have enough money to go on the meal plan, you just bought a case of ramen at Costco. And all you had to do was pour hot water over it, and that was your food, you know? And then when you went backpacking, you threw it in your backpack, and all you needed was hot water. And it was basically the lowest form of sustenance possible for a college kid, you know? Now in LA, ramen costs $14 a bowl. It has like a soft-boiled egg in it and all sorts of other little treats under the surface that you dig up, and it's spicy. And I think... What in the world, who decided that the worst food we ever ate as college kids is now worth $14 to be served at high-end restaurants? But I think, you know, if you can redefine ramen and everyone like buys in, like, yeah, that's totally normal, $14 for ramen, we can redefine evangelism as a church, okay? So I love that you're trying to do that. And I love this idea of, of kind of thinking through in your language, everyday living, everyday people, and engaging over kind of everyday grills and how you can kind of re reclaim this idea of relational evangelism. Uh, I've been serving in Hollywood, California now for about three years, and 70% of our church work in the entertainment industry in some form of another. Many of them came from other cities to pursue kind of their artistic creative dream in the city. And um, we are recognizing that as a community, the culture that we are embedded in in Hollywood is very much of a post-Christendom culture. It's a, a culture that has um, kind of seen and tasted Christianity and decided they don't want any part of it. It's a post-church, post-Christian moral, post-Christian value culture that kind of thinks in their mind they've evolved beyond that. And so sociologists call this community the nuns and the duns, right? It's those who are done with formal uh, institutional Christianity or those who were done with it and then have now given birth and are raising kids who have no exposure to institutional Christianity. And so they're kind of, they check the box of no religious affiliation. And so about 60% of Los Angeles and probably more like 80% of the Hollywood industry identify as kind of post-Christian in, um, in their behaviors and their thinking and their practices. They have no interest in pursuing their spirituality within the confines of existing church structures. And so we've had to realize how much of the dominant thinking of churches in the last 100 years has been about getting people to come to us into our building and into our programs and to honestly expose them to our professional teachers and pastors and realize that if, if you take away that assumption that they're coming to us, you have to change the entire paradigm. You have to decide that it can't be about a place or programs or pastors. It has to be about every one of you, every one of, of our membership or our community seeing themselves as being sent out into the world. It can't just be Jesus' invitation where he said, come and see, but it also has to be his invitation where he said, go out. And so that we're trying to encourage our people to live in that breathing rhythm of coming together and gathering to kind of be sustained and filled with the Spirit and learn from God's Word and be equipped, but then recognizing that the real life of the church is as we breathe out and as we scatter out into the community and kind of live this sent life. And so one of the things that we're doing is having to kind of reevaluate all of our language. So we've looked through every word on our website and every piece of paper we've ever had and all of our vision and mission statements and everything we say from the front uh, to kind of identify, uh, is there anything in our language that is keeping us in that old paradigm? Even simple things like I used to stand up and say, hey, welcome to church. 
and realizing that when you do that, you create the concept of the church as a place. So now I stand up and I say, welcome, church, as a reminder that you are the church. You know, I grew up as a, as a, as a kid learning that, you know, this is the church, this is the steeple, open the doors, see all the people, right? And then you become a parent and you're teaching that to your little kids. And I had this moment where I'm going, that is some stupid theology. Wait a minute. Hold on. That rhymes well, and it's easy to remember, but this is not the church. This is the church. Okay, wait a minute. This, okay, so this may be the steeple. I'll give you that. But this is the church on the inside. And so let's stop saying welcome to church, and let's start saying welcome church because you are the church. So little things like that. But, you know, there's such power in language, and so you have to rethink it. And metaphors especially are so important, and, and our culture gets it. I mean, marketers understand that if you can get someone to buy into a metaphor, you can change the way they think. And so this is why, uh, you know, businesses and marketers, no one sells you an office copier. They sell you a business solution, right? Because you don't want to buy a copier. What you want is a solution to your problem. And if this machine is going to be a solution, that's what I want. And we turn on the TV and, and you watch a sporting event and you don't watch a bunch of grown men kicking a little ball around because you'd feel kind of stupid if you did that for three hours. Instead, the, the announcers get you bought into this idea that you are watching an epic battle, a war, a struggle between two enemies with strategies and tactics where they are overcoming all odds and a victor will be proclaimed at the end. And you're like, yes, I'll give three hours for that. That's good. That sounds good. You know, I'll watch a Bronco game. Um, even in social media, you know, people are creating content and the whole goal of their content creation is to get their video to become viral, to infect culture, to spread from coast to coast all over the globe so that everyone is watching it and talking about it. They're trying to create things that are sticky, that keep you going back to their website or to their Instagram page. All these metaphors end up creating a way of thinking. And I think the, the challenge is that as a church, we've had a dominant metaphor that describes us as the church for the last 100 years that I think has shaped our thinking in a way that we may not actually want it to be shaped. I mean, the, the dominant metaphor for the church is that the church is a, a, a congregation of members. And what do congregations do? They, they congregate. That's right there in the word. They congregate. That's what a congregation does. They, they gather. They come together. And so when you have this metaphor that structures the way we think around this idea that our primary purpose is to congregate or to come together, it begins to influence how we think of our being. And so we begin to think of ourselves not as people, but as a congregation that comes together in a building. Um, the most common question that Christians will ask other Christians is, what church do you go to? Again, the idea that a church is a location or it's a space or it's a building that you attend. Even the word members, and I'm not opposed to church membership in any way. I think there's incredible value, biblical value, in God's people formalizing a commitment and making a covenant to others. But the metaphor of a member comes with its own set of expectations and assumptions that often I don't think we, we think about, right? I mean, members often have clubhouses where they gather, where they congregate. Members have dues that they pay in order to become part of the membership. Uh, membership has special privileges. It has special benefits. There are things that members get to do that those who are non-members don't get to do. Uh, maybe a member could bring a guest, but we all know that that guest isn't really a member. They're just a one-time visitor here, and eventually they'll leave, right? Even uh, we think about gyms and, and country clubs and, and labor unions, all these places that have members, there's an innate sense of exclusivity to them, that there are special privileges. And honestly, all of those clubs with memberships exist for the benefit of the members. Wayne, is there anything I can do on this? 
pull it away from myself just a little bit. Okay. Um, so a, any sort of a country club or a membership club that exists for the benefit of its own members has value in our society, but that's not what the church was meant to be. And so I think it's time that we, we change the metaphor. And I think if we maybe change the metaphor, it might actually change the way we think of ourselves. And if we can restructure the way we think about ourselves, if we have a new sense of our identity, that we might actually live out that identity and, and behave differently in the world. And so I just want to kind of humbly suggest this morning that I really believe the local church needs to imagine themselves more as a community of missionaries. And that term missionary, it comes from the Latin word missio, which just means sent. That we are a community of people who have been sent by God. And now you don't have to be sent to a foreign land to be sent on a mission. You could be sent on a mission across the street to the store by your parent, or you could be sent on a, on a mission by your spouse to run an errand. But the idea of a missionary is someone who has a posture of moving out of their place where they are towards someone else in order to fulfill a mission. And so as missionaries, we are people who are stepping out of our comfort zones and embracing a posture of sentness where we join God in his purposes or on his mission. A missionary is sent to join God on his mission to bring about the redemption and renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. And so I want to just kind of unpack this idea of sentness or the missionary life this morning and, and kind of do it by structuring us around three questions. So first, uh, where do we get this command in the Bible to be sent, to be a missionary? And secondly, why is being sent as a missionary so essential for the church in the West today? And then finally, if we are to be sent, what, what do we do when we get to the place that we've already been sent? What do we actually do there? What are we called to do in that place? So let's explore this idea. And I want to start by reading uh, one of the great commission passages, the one from John. It's kind of my favorite because it really has this sent language right in it. So this is uh, on the, the day of the resurrection, that first Sunday. Uh, Jesus has been resurrected in the morning. There are rumors going throughout the city that people have seen him. But the disciples have gathered together. Many of them have not seen him yet. And that's where the story picks up here in John chapter 20, verses 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came among them and he said, peace be with you. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I mean, can you imagine this scene? You've got Jesus' uh, now 11 disciples and, and many of the women probably around and then maybe even some of the fringe community who have basically locked themselves away in a room for fear of the Jewish leaders. They, they know that by being identified with Jesus, they may face the same punishment that their rabbi Jesus just faced. And so they're afraid, they're anxious, they're worried. They, they have finally, they've found a place where they can hide out and hopefully this whole thing will blow over. There's no way they're going out into the world. I mean, Mary says she thinks she saw Jesus, but uh, no one has the courage to go out looking for Jesus because they know what awaits them out there. So maybe Mary's crazy, we don't know, but I'm definitely not walking out there to look for Jesus on my own. And in the middle of that, as, they, as they're in this self-protection mode, you know, this human nature to fight or flight, and we're not fighting, fight got, fighting got Jesus dead, we're flighting into this space. In the middle of all that, Jesus goes David Copperfield and just like walks through this wall in front of, the, I just imagine Jesus being like, yes. You know, I mean, something about his post-resurrected body allows him to apparently transcend the wall there because he's spiritual but also physical in, in this matter. And it doesn't say anywhere that he unlocked the door, but while the door was locked, he appears amongst them. And now listen to what he says. He says, peace be with you. He repeats it again. 
as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. You see the contrast in this scene? I mean, the disciples are preoccupied with, with safety, with security, with, with comfort. Their, their whole goal is to protect themselves from the outside world. And then Jesus enters into that space and speaks peace over them. But the first thing he does then is send them out into the world. He says, no, no, no. I didn't die so you could hide out in this room. I died so that now you can join me on this mission. And let me give you the power to do it through the Holy Spirit. Jesus literally shows up to a congregation of members to a, a gathering of his disciples, this congregation. And he says, okay, my top priority now is not that we structure ourselves as a congregation. It's not, Peter, you be the lead pastor, and John, you be, lead the worship team, and Mary, you're going to run the women's ministry, and uh, Bartholomew, your job is to figure out how many Edison bulbs we hang above the stage. That is not too many, but not too little. 22 is probably the right number, and that's exactly how many we have in Ecclesia, too. We have 22 uh, bulbs hanging across, and he said, and, and you decide where the parking's going to be and where the check-in desk is going to be. He doesn't do any of that. He's not concerned at all with the structure of their gathering. He has one thing on his mind. The only thing he's concerned about in that moment is the mission. The mission is the main thing on Jesus' mind after the resurrection. People smarter than me have said it this way. For Jesus, it's not that the church has a mission. Rather, the mission has a church. Meaning that if you look throughout the story of God in the entire scripture, what you find is that God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, have a mission. It's embedded in them. It's who they are. They have purpose. They have a calling to bless the world. And what they realize is we don't want to do this alone. So let's create a community or let's call forth a community who can join us on the mission. But the mission is always the main thing. The mission comes before the community. In fact, the only reason the community exists is to fulfill the mission. So Jesus comes to this community, and his concern is not about caring for the community in that moment. His concern is to know that our top priority, people, is to get you involved in the mission. The passage actually gives a pretty good definition of what the church is. I mean, this is the core that will become the New Testament church. The church is the people of God filled with the Spirit of God, sent out to join in the mission of God. And that's what the church is. And so then to illustrate how they are to be sent, to kind of tell them and make it clear uh, what you're supposed to do, he says, I am sending you just as, okay, not metaphor, now simile, just as the Father sent me. So that in that moment when they think, wait, where are we going? What are we supposed to do? What Jesus is saying is, I want you to think about all that I've done in the last three years. And just as I lived, I want you to now live. And just as God sent me, now I am sending you. And so just as I made manifest the life of God to the world around me, now I send you to do the same. And just as I was out proclaiming and ushering in the kingdom of God, I send you to do the same. And just as I had authority to pronounce forgiveness or to warn people of unforgiveness based on how they responded to me, to my message, 
I now give you that same authority. It's not some arbitrary magic right that they can go around and go forgiven, forgiven, not forgiven, not forgiven, forgiven. That's not what they're, that's not what they're being authority to do. What they're being given authority to do is to say, you know how forgiveness was offered. It was offered in a relationship with me. And so just as you saw me offer that to others, now you do the same thing. And just as I sought to find broken things in the world and to restore them to where they should be, I send you to do that as well. And just as I left the comfort and the safety of heaven, just as I stepped out of eternal perfection and condescended down to enter into this dirty, messy, dangerous, risky world, just as I did that, now I send you. And I can imagine Jesus sitting there and going, so eventually, boys, someone needs to unlock the door. <laughs> eventually, we have to leave this place because I did not come just so that we could congregate together as a small group of members. I came to enlist you in my mission and to send you out. And if you begin to recognize this concept of the sentness of God's people, and you begin to then reread the entire meta-narrative of God's story, the Bible, you realize this is not a, something that is happening for the first time with Jesus. Jesus is stepping into a long line of stories where God, in some form or other, Father, Spirit, or Son, has sent out his people. Most notably back in, in Genesis, um, heck, even in Genesis 1 and 2, where he takes Adam and Eve and he sends them out to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue and fill the earth, to cultivate the earth. Then in Genesis 15, he takes Abraham and he sends him out to be a blessing to the nations around him, to join him on his mission to bless the world. And we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has a son, Joseph. Joseph ends up in slavery in Egypt. And when Joseph's brothers come and he's able to invite them in and protect them, what does he say? No, no, it's okay, boys, don't worry. God sent me ahead of you to prepare a place so that we would have somewhere to go during this famine. When Israel ends up in captivity, God comes down to Moses and says, Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh to be my spokesperson, to represent me and to bring my people out of slavery. When the people end up in captivity later, God sends the prophets to bring the word of God and to remind them that even in captivity, God has sent them there and they have a purpose in Babylon, that they're to bless the Babylonians. This is the whole message of Jeremiah 29, is to help the Babylonians thrive and as you bless them, you too will be blessed. And then in the New Testament, I mean, there's over 200 occurrences alone in the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament. John has 60 occurrences of the word sent in his gospel. But you get the angels who are sent to proclaim the Messiah is coming. You get John the Baptist who says, I was sent to prepare the way. Jesus shows up and says, I was sent to proclaim good news from Isaiah 61. He says, I must do it. I must proclaim it. Sending and being sent is mentioned over and over and over again in the gospels. And yet somehow as Christians in the West, we have lost this sentness of all believers. We've lost this call that the primary calling on my life, the way in which I glorify God and bring him honor is by joining him on his mission and being sent out to the world. Instead, we've created this culture that says, no, 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 the goal is to come together and congregate as a community. And we worship God in this place as we pull away from the culture. There's value here. This is the breathing in. But if we ever do this at the expense of the breathing out, then we've lost the heart of God. There is no church without the mission of God at the center of the church. Because throughout the Bible, every conversion to God 
is also a commissioning. Every summons, every time God says, come to me, part of the summons is then ascending to join him in the world. And so there's no such thing as an unsent Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't see themselves as a mission. We're all missionaries. It's not just the people on your refrigerator at home. Okay, it's not just the people on the wall. It's not just the people you cut. You're a missionary. And you have a mission field, whether you know it or not. And so we have to embrace just this vo- the sheer volume of language alone in the Bible around the sentness of, of, of all God's people has huge theological implications. And somehow, as a church, we've lost it. And I've wrestled with even in my own history. I spent 10 years working at a church, and my primary goal was to get people in this room on a Sunday morning so we could do the church stuff. And then to tell them that your primary job is to go out and find other people during the week and bring them in here so we can do the church stuff with them as well. Never once did I stand up here and say, my goal is to equip you to go be the church out there. And if you never come back in here again, that's okay. If you go out there and plant a new church, if you create a new faith community and you begin to gather and care for them and you never come back, then we've done our job. The Western church has been far too oriented around just meeting our own needs as Christians. We've become a a membership community that exists for our own benefit. We've become this static organization, this kind of club that defines insiders and outsiders based on our our certain behaviors, and and we point fingers at others who don't behave like us to to show that you're not like us and we're different than you, and by different we mean better than you. And we've created these boundaries around us. And honestly, all of our programs tend to become about providing religious goods and services for us as members. So we, we all want one more Bible study or one more community group or one more breakfast or one more retreat, one more way of getting fed, 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 One more thing to put on my church calendar so I can grow stronger as a Christian. I can go deeper with God. And yet, they become often at the expense of turning outward and joining God in what he's doing. And we live with this impression that like God does his best work in the church. I think God's best work is being done out in the world. And I think he is longing and knocking at our hearts to say, hey, you want to see some really cool stuff? Forget the church. Come join me out here. I'm doing stuff out here, and I would love the church to come join me. And I'm with you on Sundays, and I'm with you when you gather, and I'm honored, but my heart is to get you to join me out in the world. The church is not here to feed you. The church, as a body, as an institution, is here to equip you to go out and join God in his mission. That's the reason the church exists. And so we can't simply view missions as something that is part of the church as if it's just one department alongside men's ministry and women's ministry and worship ministry and stewardship ministries. No, no, no. Mission is the central axis. It's the organizing principle of the community of God. There can't be a children's ministry without mission at the center of it. There cannot be a men's ministry without mission at the center of it. This is what God did when he created the church. He organized it all around mission and he sent his people out to the world. Now, why is this so important today? I mean, we are rapidly approaching a culture that is more and more post-Christian. I lived for three years in Brussels, Belgium. I was a pastor for 10 years at a, a church in Virginia, and one day I had this whisper from God that said, what if you could go to the future and experience the challenge of post-Christian culture in Europe and learn what God is doing there and then come back to the American church and help prepare her for what's ahead? 
And uh, my family and I um, became overseas missionaries, so to speak, and went over to Brussels for three years. But what we did in Brussels was that we went in and we took a, a community of believers and we trained every one of them to live as missionaries in their own neighborhoods. And we recognized over there that within our first year, we had some cool events we were doing. We had gatherings like this. We'd come to worship. And we would invite our friends from the community who were not yet followers of Jesus. And we'd invite them to come join us. And I'm telling you, for three years, not one person said yes to our invite. And I began to realize, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. So much of the church structure I just built back in Virginia was based on getting my people to invite people to the church you're telling me they're never coming, ever? You just took the invite, the church invite, out of my tool belt as a disciple maker, and I started being like, wait a minute, what else, what else do I have? And so we began to say, we have to equip every individual not to bring people to the disciple-making programs, but to be disciple-making people and to take responsibility for that, and to recognize that in a post-Christian culture, the gap between Christian culture and non-Christian culture is far too big for the non-Christians to enter into. And I, and I think about it this way, and this is just by way of metaphor, but imagine in our you know, season of barbecuing that uh, a neighbor moved in next door, and um, as you got to know them, you found out they were Muslim. And Joseph, the, the father, got to know you, let's say, me as the husband, and we began to have a relationship over the, the hedges and the fence, and over a couple of weeks, we got to know each other's story, and we really appreciated, um, you know, each other's families, and we did some things together. And then one day, Joseph said, um, hey, John, and this might seem kind of crazy, but um, my family and I are really involved at the mosque in town, and um, we would love to have you join us on a Saturday. In fact, we have, this, we have this young imam. He's really funny. He tells great stories. I think you really enjoy him. And, and there's this great program for kids where they can learn about God. And honestly, my kids, they say it's the best highlight of their week. They love it. It's got music and games. And man, they come home exhausted. They had so much fun. And um, in fact, I, I, have this, uh, I have this invite card um, that you can bring with you on Saturday when you come. And if you turn it in at the cafe, you can get a free cup of tea. Um, and if you flip it over, you'll notice on the back that it kind of has our building. And here's where guest parking is. And we've re reserved some sections for just guests. So don't worry, you'll have a place to sit. And, and man, we just love to have you. In fact, we're, we're doing a new series on relationships. And gosh, you know, what marriage couldn't use a little work on their relationships? Would, would you like to join us? Now, here's the thing. If you're in a Christian culture and you've grown up in the church, in the Christian world, okay, and someone from a different culture, a Muslim culture, invites you into their space, your brain starts swimming in questions. Wait, a I've never been to a mosque. Do I have to take my shoes off in a mosque? Wait, I, I went to a mosque in Turkey, and, they, and my wife and I couldn't be near each other. Are you going to separate me from my wife? My wife is not having that. She's going to sit right next to me. And I, I, I know there are certain kinds of Muslims. Are you one of those kinds of Muslims? And, and I don't know what you believe about God. I don't know if I want you teaching my kid about God. And, and eventually, you're going to get to a point where you say, Joseph, man, you're so friendly. That was so kind of you. But, um, you know, I think we got something going on on Saturday. I don't think we're going to be able to make it. And that was what I got every time I invited someone in Brussels. It didn't matter how friendly I was, no matter how great the program was, it didn't matter how wonderful the experience was going to be, they're not coming because the cultural gap is just too big for them. And they know that they don't know what happens inside a church. And they don't know what a pastor of missional collaborations or whatever Roland's new title, they don't know what that is. Okay, and, and they, they don't understand the experiences that are often going to be going on. And they know about those kinds of Christians. And they wonder, are you one of those kinds of Christians? Because we don't want anything to do with those kinds of Christians. 
And so they just say no. And so we, in this culture that is coming more and more, and I have heard that it exists already in Colorado Springs, that you may not have a post-Christian culture, but I do hear there's an anti-Christian culture in Colorado Springs. That there is, a, there is a culture in your own community that maybe is so done with the Christianity of the city that is like, don't even talk to me about that. And you wouldn't even think of inviting them to church because of things they've said about Christians. And so how do we change this paradigm from saying, you've got to come to us, to embracing the sentence of every believer and saying, we have to go to you? Well, the good news is you don't have to go anywhere. You just have to embrace a posture of sentness. You have to recognize that you have already been sent as a missionary to the places you're doing life. In Forge, we call these your, your first, second, and third places, the places you live, work, and play, the places you recreate, or the places your artist studio, or your yoga studio, or the YMCA, or your son or daughter's uh, travel sports team, those places where you're already doing life, that's your mission field. And it's not about going to some foreign country. It's about embracing a state of mind that I am a missionary in these places. And so I'm going to begin to embed in this culture and, and listen to people's needs and longings. And I'm going to begin to seek to bless them in ways that, that are good news for them. And that God ultimately, it's not accidental where you are. It's strategic. God has sent you there. In fact, I bet if we pulled up a, a map of Colorado Springs and took all of Pulpit Rock just as one faith community and you kind of pinned your first, second, and third places all around, I bet God would have pretty good coverage in this city. I mean, God already has his people in the communities and in the cultures that he's trying to reach. And so rather than trying to get them to come to us, if we're already there, how do we live out the good news of Jesus in those places? And recognizing that to be sent doesn't mean we have to go to a foreign land, but it does imply movement. The movement is that we have to move out of our comfort zone. We have to move out of that walled-in upper room that the disciples were in that says, no, 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 safety, security, the world out there is risky. I don't know how to engage it. Can we just stay in here, Jesus? We have to listen to Jesus saying, no, 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 I didn't die so you could stay in here. And ultimately, what I've offered you, I want to offer the whole world. And we have to embrace that posture of sentness. And we have to ask God, what are you doing in these places and in the lives of the people around me that you've called me to? I remember in Brussels, one of the first things they teach you as a foreign missionary going into a new place is uh, don't assume that you're bringing Jesus with you. And by that, what they mean is don't assume that when you show up as a Christian missionary, you're the first Christian who's going to do Christian things and share the good message of Christ in this place. That there's often a, a, a horrible arrogance of Western missionaries to go into other places and think we are now the answer or we're the first Christians you've met. No, no. God is sovereign over the whole globe. God has been in that place long before you ever showed up. So the posture you embrace is not, hey, I'm here with the good news. It's, God, what are you already doing here that I can just join you in? God, open my eyes to what you're doing in the life of my coworker. Open my eyes to what conversations you've been having in the spirit in the heart of my neighbor. Open my eyes to what you're doing in this neighborhood to bring about beauty and justice and renewal. And then let me join you there. And there may be times in which God prompts us to be initiators, but more often than not, we're, we're, we're following Jesus into the world. In fact, Jesus himself said of his own mission, I only do what I see the Father doing. That's pretty incredible. We think of Jesus as being a pioneer who started and was initiating all that. Jesus himself said, I only do in my life what I see the Father doing. And that's the calling of every missionary. Go out into your mission field and do what you see the Father doing around you.
So let's get practical. Our third question here, what do we do in the places to where we are already sent? Well, I think our primary responsibility is to alert people to the kingdom of God. It's to open their eyes to the universal rule and reign of God around them. Now, often when I ask people that question, kind of what do we do in our mission field, the first answer I get is, well, we share the gospel with them. Now, there's nothing technically wrong with the answer, share the gospel with them, but what I tend to find as I do a little digging is that the gospel message that they want to share is a pretty reductionist, um, kind of truncated version of the gospel. The gospel they want to share is often something you can draw on a napkin or something that you can create and articulate in four spiritual laws that often talks about how someone who is a sinner can experience salvation from their sin and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And at the center of it, of course, is a cross. And so if we just go give them that gospel message, then they'll understand how they can be saved. But here's the problem with that kind of reductionist view of the gospel. If you open your Bible and look at Luke chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus pulls his disciples together. It's the first time he sends them out as the 12. And he says, go into the, the nearby towns and preach the gospel. Now, if your gospel presentation includes words like cross, blood, substitutionary atonement, um, even the word resurrection, it's not going to fit in Luke 9, 6. You can't use those words in Luke 9, 6, because none of them have happened yet. And the irony is, when Jesus says to the disciples, go preach the gospel, none of them go, what is the gospel, Jesus? Nothing's happened yet. There is no, I mean, they go, oh, okay, perfect, got it, and they go out. Because the gospel, in that moment, the good news that Jesus has been proclaiming is that the kingdom of God is entering in to the kingdom of the world. That the empire, the kingdom you live under, the Roman rule that, that you know very well is an oppressive kingdom is now being infiltrated by the kingdom of heaven, by a very different kingdom, one in which the poor are, are having a good news proclaimed to them, meaning the poor are having people actually see them for who they are, that the, the blind are having their sight restored, that the lame can now walk, and that all of the, the, the kingdom of the world is being turned upside down by the kingdom of God. Go proclaim that. And as you proclaim that, as they say, I want to be a part of that kingdom, then you let them know that the way to enter into the kingdom is through the king. And Jesus is saying, I am the king. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the way in to the kingdom. But there's no message of the cross at that moment because that hasn't come yet. Now, does that mean that we don't communicate the cross now at all? No. But what it means is that we need a more robust understanding of what we do in our mission field. We don't just slide a, a propositional truth tracked out to someone. We don't just draw the bridge illustration on a napkin. There is a fullness to the gospel that we often miss. And so that's why I like to say the better thing to do is to try to alert people to the universal rule and reign of God in their midst. In Brussels, um, we would eat out uh, regularly. And uh, as you know, in Europe, kind of the culture is much more fine dining than fast food. And so your meals would last two and a half hours. There would only be two seatings a night, um, you know, at a restaurant. And uh, my kids got into the, this eating out. And one of our favorite things about eating out was after you would order your meal, the, uh, the waiter would come back around and he would uh, give you something that they called an amuse-bouche, which literally means a mouth amusement. And it was um, basically a, a one-bite hors d'oeuvre, just one for each person at the table. And they would plate it, and they would say, compliments of the chef. 
And, and the thing I loved about it was I hadn't paid for it. It was like free food. This is awesome, okay? And so each one of us would take that one little bite, the amuse-bouche, and we would eat it. And the amuse-bouche was amazing. And the whole purpose of the amuse-bouche was to alert your senses to the meal that was to come. It was to kind of awaken your palate to say, if this is what a chef can do with a tiny little cracker, if this is what a chef can do in a tiny little glass, just think what he can do on a big plate. If this is the free food, imagine what the 25 euro meal is gonna be like, you know? And so you would eat that amuse-bouche and you'd look and go, oh, that was so good. Oh, I'm so excited about what's to come. We are sent into the world to be an amuse-bouche of the kingdom, to plate for people a foretaste of the kingdom of God so that they, when they experience us as a, as a person, an individual, or as a, a couple, as a family, as a community, that when they experience us, when they take and see, so to speak, they go, oh, what is that? that? That's not like anything else. And that was a free thing you just offered to me? I didn't have to earn it or pay for it? I want to know more. I want to know more about your life. That was just one encounter I had with you. I saw something I've never seen before. Tell me more. And so in our mission fields, our goal is to create these living metaphors of the kingdom of God, to try to figure out what does redemption and renewal look like in my apartment complex, in my, uh, my cul-de-sac, in, in my office space. I mean, what would it look like to bring beauty and peace and justice and love and grace and mercy, all these kingdom values, how could I live that out here? And in so doing, plate a beautiful amuse-bouche for the people around me who don't have not yet entered into the kingdom. And then be ready that as they taste of that, and as I offer that to them freely, not with a pointed finger of condemnation, but as a free gift, as I let God give me away as a gift to them, and they experience it, and they say, whoa, 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 what was that all about? Hey, uh, I remember that three weeks ago, we walked by that park over there, and you and I were talking, and I remember that we said we'd never let our kids go in that park because there's a rusted out slide. And remember we saw those hypodermic needles, and we said they gotta be doing drugs around here. And then um, I just walked by the park, and I saw you and your friends in there, and, and it's beautiful. And what's, what's going on, what happened there? And you say, well, um, some friends and I, that day that we were with you, we noticed that the park was broken. And um, we believe that in the kingdom to come, broken things will be beautiful. And so some of us that I know, we gathered together and we just thought, what could we do to make this broken park beautiful again? And to take something that is scary and dangerous and uh, threatening and to make it a place of embrace and beauty. And so we just decided to, to kind of chip in some money and resources and we cleaned it up. And we, we bought a new slide and cleaned up all the needles. And, um, and yeah, now it's just a place of laughter and where moms and dads are connecting and communities being formed. Wait, what? Why would you do that? Well, we just believe that that's what God does, and we're, we're followers of God. In fact, we're followers of Jesus, and Jesus came to make the broken things of the world beautiful, so we're just trying to join him. And if you'd ever want to know more about that, we'd love to have you participate. We're, we have got another project we're thinking about doing next. And just imagine that person just savoring that moment, savoring that, that metaphor that they see in front of them, wrestling with it. It's such a different picture than would you come join me in my church on a Sunday morning that you've never been with people you've never met to sing songs you've never heard, hear stories you've never heard before. It's bringing the meal to them and offering it in a way that's beautiful. You know, the secret to the sentness though, the secret that's embedded in every one of these great commissions is that this is not something we do alone. 
And oftentimes in a message like this, or I feel this burden as I come and try to uh, awaken and alert us and maybe inspire us to this kind of life, I recognize that I can be misunderstood as maybe placing a new burden on you, that this is now what you have to do, and that I'm adding a, 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 an obligation to your life. Oh, great, now I have to be a missionary. I thought it was good not just being a Christian, I have to be a missionary too. Ministry is not our burden that we, of obligation to God. Ministry is a gift to us. And the reason it's a gift to us is because ministry is part of the way that we experience the presence of God. And so when, God, when Jesus is sending the disciples out and he says, I send you out, the next thing he does, the first thing he does is he breathes on them, the Holy Spirit. He gives them a calling, but then he empowers them with his presence. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, go out into all the world and, the, and lo, I go with you. There is no missional living apart from the mission of God inside of us, so to speak. The missionary himself, Jesus, embedding within us. And so we don't go do this alone. We don't white knuckle it and try to just tough it out. We ultimately say, God, I need a fresh filling of your spirit. If this is what you're calling me into, then I need you to empower me. I need you to encourage me and equip me and strengthen me. And I need your wisdom to know what to do in this place. And then we trust that if this is really at the heart of God, that he loves answering that prayer. And so let me just close this morning by praying for you and just praying that you might receive afresh the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, that he might then call you and invite you into the beautiful life of being sent. Let's pray. Father, we are so honored that, Lord, you would take a task, a purpose that you could fulfill totally on your own as the sovereign over all creation and that you would invite us as broken people to join into it. And that, Father, when we screw it up, when we do it wrong, when we make horrible uh, mistakes, when, Father, we feel low and feel like failures, that you come along and you comfort us and you forgive us and you restore us and you clean us up and you tell us to get back out there and try again. And we thank you for that grace that comes. Father, I pray for this community here that you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit, that it might empower and strengthen and embolden them that it might give them the courage to unlock that door, to step out of their comfort zones, to enter into this risky world around us and to engage it humbly the way you engage the world, recognizing that it might even cost them their life. But that, God, it is the way of Jesus and the way we are called to. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.